David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. For the next hour, we will be talking about Michael Jordan. Not with Michael Jordan, but probably the closest thing to it. On the phone, we have Roland Lazenby, who has fashioned the comprehensive biography called Michael Jordan, The Life. He's not the guy that played James Bond. That was some uh, different Lazenby. Isn't Roland, good looking as I am. You think so? Uh, they got the wrong one. If they'd gotten me, <laughs> you know, I'd still be employed. <laughs> anyway, you are a longtime author whose most recent book happens to be Michael Jordan, The Life, which I would have to think is the definitive biography of the aforementioned Michael Jordan. Before we get into the book itself, how did you get into the realm of sports writing? I was a um, I was a high school wrestling coach, a varsity head coach at age 23, down here in Blacksburg, Virginia, where Virginia Tech is, and we had a pretty good wrestling team. And uh, you know, wrestling teams don't get much attention, and so I, I did some articles for the local weekly paper, quoted myself in them. And uh, these articles were on my top wrestlers. I was hoping to help them get scholarships. And I found I liked it. So you somehow segued from the world of wrestling to the world of pro basketball. How did that come about? Well, uh, you know, I uh, once uh, the, the year was over, the sports editor at the local paper quit. And they had hired me to write a few articles uh, and I enjoyed it, so I left my teaching and coaching job to work for two seventy an hour as the sports editor of the local paper. Fortunately, in four months, I got hired by a daily. Uh, and um, then I, I was a news I was a feature writer and then a news writer, uh, and I was hired at the big daily covering the region. And I decided to do a book on Ralph Sampson. He was sort of changing the culture at the University of Virginia in the early uh, 1980s. And one thing led to another. I did a fair amount of college basketball. Then Billy Packer and I did a couple of books. One was a 50-year anniversary book on the Final Four that did really well. And so the publisher, uh, Taylor Publishing, was doing a lot of sports books then because the Final Four book did so well, gave me the choice of what I wanted to do. And I started doing pro basketball books. I wanted to write about pro basketball. Is this the largest book you've ever written? Because it's over 700 pages, I saw. Um, 
Yes, I would. I, I'd have to say so. Yeah, I, I, you know, I wrote the history of the NBA Finals, and that was a much larger format book. I probably wrote as much copy. You know, I had to interview all of the the greats and not so greats of an NBA history to do that book. That was a lot of copy too. But this, I, I, I was older. Uh, it really exhausted me twice, and I've, I've never gotten exhausted. I've always had great energy levels. But this was a huge physical and mental challenge. Now, there's an old journalism axiom that goes, if I had more time, I could have written shorter. Yeah. You, well, you, 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 lost, you lost some pages from this book. and that's, I, you know, I wrote about 1,100 pages. And, no, we spent a fair amount of that time trimming back. And, uh, you know, I wish I had probably cut another 100 pages, but we just couldn't find where to do it. And, uh, yeah, if I'd had another couple of years, it would have been great. <laughs> There's been a lot of books written by Michael Jordan. What makes this different than the books that have already been written? Well, I wanted to, you know, there was nothing known ab about his family truly. Uh, a lot of what the Jordans said about themselves, uh, they really had constructed false narratives to uh, protect the family from publicity on negative things. And, you know, I, when I'd worked in Chicago, uh, and I'd written several books, including one called Blood on the Horns, about the breakup of the Bulls, um, uh, and I just, you know... I, I could, wanted to know where Jordan came from because you don't just have somebody who is that special just suddenly pop up and appear from nowhere, which is basically if you if you look at the narrative of of his life to this point, it was just he just came from nowhere, and I wanted to know who the people were in his family background who were Jordan esque before there was Jordan. And you go back to his great-great-grandfather. And uh, had you gone back another generation, is it safe to assume that those people would have been slaves? Well, uh, we were getting close. His great-grandfather was born in 1891. And uh, the... All of the Jordans uh, settled the swamp down uh, in, off the northeastern Cape Fear River above Wilmington after slavery. And there had been a white preacher from Jordan, excuse me, from Georgia, named Jordan, who had married into a plantation and came to run the plantation. And apparently... Uh, when the uh, Civil War ended uh, and emancipation came, the Jordans settled this swamp and had taken his name. Did Michael Jordan, did you try to get Michael to give some uh, quotes or some interviews, or did Michael want to know part of it? Well, you know, Michael's been really good to me over the years. He was great to me for Blood on the Horns. He's given and you know he's given me sit down interviews over the years. He's always been very friendly to me, and people simply despise having biographies written about them. 
And so I went to Michael uh, down in Charlotte, shook his hand, and told him what I was doing. He didn't appear to be elated. But at that time, I, I really didn't ask him to get involved. Later, when we uh, discussed that more, uh, Michael said he would get involved if if he could control the editorial content. And, uh, you know, there have been several of those books, and they're very good, um, those books that have been written with him. But Little Brown, my publisher, uh, really wanted a biography, and um, and it was just the kind of book that needed to be written with an independent uh, approach. And and I think that benefits everyone involved uh, to have this kind of book. Now, David Halberstam did a obviously a, a wonderful, more of a cultural biography on Jordan. Uh, he never got to speak with Michael. He was going to get to, and Jerry Krause uh, apparently famously kicked David Halberstam off the Bulls team bus. Uh, he was he was doing that book, and I got to visit with him during the '98 season when I was writing Blood on the Horns. Now, going into this project, were there certain people you knew you would have access to, and certain people you knew that you would not? Well, and were there any surprises? Who was helpful and who wasn't? Uh, well, you know, there wasn't a lot of. Um, clarity on that you know when you start one of these projects you don't know who's going to want to get involved but one thing i discovered is that michael jordan intersected a lot of lives in basketball in a major way and sometimes it wasn't what you think it would be and so what happened is i you know in journalism sometimes we call them story beacons these people who who can lead you through things as major witnesses. And so I ended up with a number of excellent story beacons on the life of Michael Jordan uh, uh, and on the the genesis of his family. And so I, I was very fortunate. People like Eddie Pinckney. And Eddie, of course, was at all the McDonald's, on all the McDonald's teams with him, on the international teams. He was on Michael's little squad during Bobby Knight's Olympic tryouts. Ed, Eddie, he, he was at all these major moments and, it, you know, just really had a great view. Kenny Gaddison played against him in high school. Uh, his, uh, on the courts, uh, the playground courts as well as the high school teams, and uh, it was Kenny's team that defeated Michael in his last high school game. Kenny Gaddison had a, a story he wanted to tell that was uh, pretty emotional. And uh, you go right down the line with all kinds of different people jumping in with truly great perspective. Steve Kerr was just tremendous. Um, George Mumford, the Bulls team psychologist, offered great, great insight. Uh, Billy Packer, who spent so much time in the ACC with Jordan and a, and a variety of people in the ACC. One of Jordan's hallmates during his uh, critical sophomore year at Carolina uh, had a tremendous amount of insight and, and contacted me. And, and then just down the line, you know, getting to to talk to Scott.
Scottie Pippen and Tim Hallam over at the Bulls and Joe O'Neill. Both of those guys were on Jordan's private plane going with him to the Hall of Fame. And so I tried at every turn to to find those people, and of course multiple sources, but to find those people that really could be a guide through good portions of Jordan's life. Did Michael try to muzzle any of the people that you tried to get in contact with for the book? Um, you know, um, Jordan keeps a tight circle. He probably didn't attempt to muzzle anyone, but the Carolina coaches are, are very careful about how they talk about things. Uh, and Dean Smith was incapacitated for the most part and unable to talk. But Art Chansky, who had been the insider, you know, he was uh, Eddie Fogler, the Carolina assistant coach during the Jordan era. He was Eddie Fogler's best man at his wedding. And he had written, um, you know, and being an inside guy, there was a lot of stuff he couldn't write about. And yet he could talk about it in an interview years later. And he was fantastic. Uh, you know, Jerry Krause had alleged that Dean Smith kicked Michael Jordan out of the University of North Carolina because he'd gotten too big for the program. Uh, Jerry alleged that in his interviews for the books. And, and it sounded ludicrous. Uh, Billy Packer was upset. He said Jerry Krause wouldn't know because Dean Smith wouldn't tell anyone. But as, as I started digging into it, you know, I really don't think Dean Smith kicked him out, but he was angry with Michael for that dunk at Maryland. The ACC used it in its promos for promoting the league, and Dean Smith wouldn't even allow its use on his coaching show. And the Jordans were really sort of trying to put on the brakes uh, as far as Michael exiting a year early. And Dean Smith was, you know, really ramping it up. And there were a couple things behind the scenes. First, Dean Smith always thought first of his players. And in Jordan's case, he was doing that, which really angered a number of alums uh, and powerful figures around the program. But James Worthy had just broken his leg as a rookie in, in Los Angeles and that obviously had played on Dean Smith's mind. And also the Nike people through back channels had sort of already contacted the Carolina program. They, uh, Sonny Vaccaro had come up with this idea of having a whole program built around Jordan, totally unique approach. Uh, Sonny Vaccaro was a tremendous help to me for this book. And um, obviously Dean... Smith knew that, that Michael was in for a large payday. It wasn't as cut and dried as it, it may have sounded, and there are some elements of truth in what Krauss alleged. I found it all fascinating. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned Jerry Krauss, also known as the sleuth. Right. You, you as a biographer, you're part sleuth, part historian, <clears throat> part sort of archaeologist. Is there one part of the process that you enjoy more than the others, and what's what's the most challenging part of it all? Well, um, you know, uh, I really enjoy gathering the information, getting the pieces together. I went through 5,000 death certificates in, in addition to all the other public records down on the coastal plain of North Carolina putting together the story. Uh, and, uh, you know, Michael's 
grandfather was born in eight great grandfather was born in eighteen ninety-one. His father was this guy named Dick Jordan, who that's just a very tangential connection to the Jordans. Um the uh Charlotte Hand, uh, Michael's great-great-grandmother, was unmarried, and so she lived with the Hands, H-A-N-D, and her son was listed as Dawson Hand in all the census records uh, until he turned about 19 or 20, and he began calling himself in the census records Dawson Jordan. And so, uh, following this guy, this great grand, great grandfather was five, five and crippled, but a really fierce guy. And he, he didn't die until Michael was 14 and he lorded over the Jordan family. And when I mentioned him to Michael, a tear came, uh, you know, welled up in, in Michael's eye. He's, he's a very powerful guy. You know, Michael always showed this affinity for handicapped people behind the scenes and refused any publicity whatsoever. Got really angry if anybody tried to publicize it. And, and I, I began to think that his, his great-grandfather later in life had been a sharecropper and a moonshiner. He'd run uh, these huge rafts of logs on the northeastern Cape Fear River. He was a, you know, just a real tough guy, but he was in tremendous pain as an older man. In his 80s, and I, I just can't help but think that a young Michael, as a child, was really impressed by that. He, you know, Michael's a tough guy. He he drew a lot of that toughness, I think, from these these really hard customers who were the, sh- the sharecroppers and moonshiners. That's what his people were. And uh, but but he, he he had a real soft spot for children and for handicapped people. And he really. Uh, stepped up in so many ways in that regard. You can criticize Michael for a lot of things, but probably not in those two areas. You mentioned that uh, his a person in college interviewed his uh, doormate. I, what I thought interesting was that Michael, his sophomore in college, started watching films that his uh, doormate had filmed to become a better player, and it was rare at that time film study. Right. It was hard to get... Uh, you know, the videotape machines, they were really expensive. But Michael, you know, who told me in an interview uh, sitting down in 2008, he told me, he said, timing is everything in talking about his life. And his time, you know, he came along. At, he had the, this unbelievable game and came along right as the whole video component of basketball, of all sports, was really blowing up. And, that you know, he gained this great po- uh, popularity because he could fly, supposedly, but the, his competitiveness kicked in later. But yes, it was fascinating to to find this guy who sat there and watched Michael study himself in those first moments where he was really emerging as, as you, a unique player. Now, you mentioned George Mumford before, and when... I believe it was the Bulls tested him. There was this hyper competitiveness came right. out in, in in such a way that uh, there, there were thoughts that maybe uh, he's Jordan's bipolar or or something of that nature. Right, uh, manic depressive even. And George Mumford, you know, uh, he was Phil's handpicked guy to 
not only be the psychologist, but he was the he was really the Zen master of the bulls because he did all the meditation. George was the mindfulness expert. He he was the guy really trained in all this stuff, and he was African American. He was he's a brilliant man, and Phil selected him because uh, it made it easier uh, to to get African American athletes to accept Phil's non traditional methods, and George was more advanced in them than Phil ever could have been, and, and he had played basketball at the University of Massachusetts and roomed with Dr. J, and so George was no, uh, he was not some guy with a, you know, psychology training that wandered into the gym and was amazed at something. This was a guy who had seen greatness up close, and and when he saw Jordan in practice, now Jordan was, the first time Mumford saw him in practice, Jordan was returning from baseball. And he was absolutely filled with this tremendous anger that entire year, uh, spring of 95 through the fall of 95 into that great 96 season. And when, when Jordan first saw him, I mean, when Mumford first saw Jordan in March of 95, he was astounded at a guy this age, forget the age, at his ability over the top, his energy level and practice, his complete uh, domination of this team. He couldn't, Mumford couldn't believe it. And he said, there's no way this guy can be that up. He has to have some mental condition, and he's going to have downsides. And he kept looking all that spring. <clears throat> Mumford kept looking for Jordan to crash, you know, to hit the lows that come with manic depression or or with bipolar disorder, and it never happened. As it went on and on, he began to realize that, that Jordan was this really weird guy. This was his normal state. He was up all the time, and the more he studied him, he came to understand what other people have learned. Jordan didn't sleep. You know, many nights, a couple hours of sleep, that's all. You know, he'd, he'd be out doing stuff, and then he's up at five and off playing golf, and, you know, just this really bizarre character in a lot of ways. You mentioned that the family kept uh, tight lid on a lot of issues. The alleged rape of Jordan's sister by the father, how did that come about? And was there, <coughs> there still ill will in their family, or has it all been forgotten? Uh, no, I, 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 you know, I think time has helped some. And I really don't think Jordan found out about it until the late 90s, after possibly as late as 98 or 99, when it's and maybe a, a few years earlier. It, it's hard to say because the family hasn't discussed it. Um, you know, I, I read the sister's book, and I still wasn't sure what to do about it. But then I was doing research at UNC Library, and there the book was on special collections. And I knew... Um, if you're a biographer and you're trying to 
truly explain people, you have to consider all the family sources. And uh, this was one of them. The hard part, you can't draw too many conclusions from it because the incident occurred in 1975. It had been going on for a while, for several years, when it, uh, when it was revealed then. It was not investigated at the time. But, but my main point is just the allegation of incest is uh, enough to, if not destroy a family, severely harm a family chemistry. And the Jordans, without revealing the allegations from the uh, oldest daughter, the older daughter, they absorbed those, uh, Miss Jordan did, and the family kept moving forward. But over the ensuing years there grew up this tremendous conflict between Mr. Jordan and Ms. Jordan uh, and that became something increasingly that Michael had to deal with a lot of it ended up being financial in nature, a lot of it ended up being the, the mother and father attempting to influence Michael from their different perspectives now, for all the drive and the hyper-competitiveness that Michael had, some might question uh, his decision-making process. He, he initially wanted Adidas over Nike. He wanted to go to Virginia. Those situations didn't come about. Had he followed his path to Adidas, had he followed his path to Virginia, the likelihood that we get the same person exist? Well, in some ways, you know, that's hard to know because Dean Smith's influence was profound. But uh, in the fact that he played such a tight system, it was really hard. NBA executives complained, had complained for years that they really couldn't evaluate North Carolina players because Dean Smith's system disguised their uh, athleticism or hid their lack of athleticism. And so he was, Dean Smith was a, a, a tough call for NBA GMs anyway. But Jordan, first of all, wanted to go to the University of Virginia. Remember, he was late developing. He wasn't in the top 500 high school players as he wasn't listed there as a junior. And his thing blew up after his junior year at the five-star camp. And everyone in Wilmington, Jordan himself, no one believed that he could ever play at Carolina. They thought that if he went there, he would sit the bench. Virginia had Ralph Sampson. And this was a huge player. He was. It's hard to describe Ralph's influence on the game because he was 7'4". He terrified everyone. And, uh, you know, uh, Terry Holland admitted in the interviews for the book that he chose not to recruit Michael Jordan. He thought he was going to sign Chris Mullen, who later instead went to St. John's. And, uh, you know, Ralph Sampson would later learn that he could have had Jordan as a teammate. 
But Jordan stepped into a perfect situation at North Carolina. They needed, they'd already been to the Final Four, they'd lost one starter, and, uh, you know, the record shows that was, that was just a huge piece of luck in Michael Jordan's life to, to go to Carolina and start as a freshman. As far as the Nike stuff goes, I'll just add real quickly, Michael was a 21, 22-year-old kid. It was his mother, as Sonny Vaccaro said, who was the impressive one. She was the one who secured that contract. No one really understood the, uh, you know, the, the power of basketball shoe contracts then, because nobody had a very big shoe contract. And George and uh, Nike had stock was around two dollars when things were getting going with Jordan. It was it was a known company, obviously, but not what it is today. What I found interesting, everybody thinks of Jordan as a shrewd businessman, but again, like Elliot was saying, he didn't really want Nike, and the mom was pushing it, but Jordan's main thing was he just wanted a car. Well, he was a spoiled kid, uh, um, you know, and that comes across pretty well, you know. It, it, most people at 21 and 22, there are some who are fully formed, but an awful lot of them, even with uh, three years of college, uh, as Michael Jordan had, they really don't understand the world in depth. It, it takes a long time. You know, Jordan never even held a job. He he was quite naive. He his his single job, and his father was all over him because he was so lazy and he wouldn't work. He had a job, and he kept it a week. His mother got him the job at uh, one of her, uh, She worked at a bank, and one of the men, one of her customers at the bank owned a hotel, and he hired Michael to clean the swimming pool and do other maintenance chores around the hotel. Jordan kept the job a week. One of the most amazing things to me was he had a job for a week. He had one pay stub. And somehow that pay stub from his one job wound up in the Cape Fear Museum down in North Carolina. <laughs> was he more? Was he more a mama's boy or a daddy's boy? Uh, he was um, the product of a disapproving father, so much more favored by his mother. His father favored Larry, and this is one of the things that. In, in the family's opinion, in Michael's opinion, his siblings, one of the things that sort of ignited Michael was that Larry, who was 11 months older than Michael, was mechanically inclined, as was James Jordan. And Michael Jordan was not mechanically inclined. He was lazy. And from a very early age, his father was... Uh, Open in his favoritism to Larry, he was extremely disapproving of Michael. He challenged his masculinity, and this sort of hardwired Jordan for a lot of the things he did. First, he, uh, you know, he he eventually buried Larry. They had all these uh, backyard battles that Larry won just about all of. Larry was stronger. Michael was a little taller, but much thinner. But once Michael finally um, vanquished Larry in those ferocious backyard uh, battles of one-on-one, he just buried the guy in baseball and in uh, basketball. 
Uh, and one thing George Mumford pointed out, this one-on-one mentality, these huge battles with Larry, uh, and they were way over the top. That was That really set the stage for how Michael Jordan related to every one of his teammates from thereafter. James Worthy told me that when he was a junior and Michael came to North Carolina, that Michael was a bully. He said, Michael's a bully, and he bullied me. And I assume that's the treatment he received from his father. Yet, you find that Michael Jordan had this intense, close connection to his father. No question. Uh, And I think that was one of the things that probably is characteristic. I'm not a psychologist, but the, the format for so many ways in which Michael related to the people around him came out of, of that childhood. First, his father's disapproval, his battles with Larry, and that, that you know, he, he had great affection for his brother and his father, but on another level, that that never really registered it. It was how he, uh, and he, you know, he always had uh, that that chip on his shoulder about everything. I think that was the thing about his Hall of Fame speech. He really didn't plan that. He was he rode with Tim Hallam and Joe O'Neill. And they all joked on the plane. He he got Johnny Bach had fallen on hard financial times. He bought Johnny some clothes. I think and gave him the money to. And he flew him up there, and they're all talking and having fun, talking about putting in the bull's offices into trash cans and all the stuff they did when he was a young guy. And, and um, he, he really started to get nervous once they got near to landing at, in Springfield for the Hall of Fame. And he, he really just was trying to explain all this stuff that had driven driven him. And, you know, it wasn't nice stuff that drove him. It was negative stuff with virtually all these people in his life. And, you know, it, it's jarring because Jordan has been an extremely lucky person. And he's had extremely fortunate associations with all of these incredible coaches and basketball minds and teammates. And yet he's sort of locked into how he relates to the world. Does a hyper-competitive person such as Michael ever find happiness other than the the fleeting variety that's winning a game or a, a bet or a round of golf? Well, I think those things have made Michael immensely happy. You know, some people really do have a tendency to dwell on the negatives. I I think Michael is much happier than his Hall of Fame speech reflected. I I think he's uh, much more appreciative. You know, his talk with me was before the Hall of Fame speech. He said timing is everything. To me, he was acknowledging his great fortune in everything. And, And I think I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time talking with Michael about Kobe Bryant, and these are one-on-one conversations. And I kept looking for him to have, show some condescension. And I mean, it wasn't like he was playing a lot of people. And yeah, I've been fortunate to write these books, but it's not like I'm some titan of journalism. 
that he's got to play. You know what I'm saying? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not from Sports Illustrated or whatever. And so, um, I, you know, I, I think Michael's a lot happier than people realize. I think he was trying to explain himself, and it didn't come across. I mean, he was being honest, but people weren't quite ready for that. I think the other thing that's always a fact with Michael, he was with Michael. He was marketed so hard. He was so uh, gifted, so magical as a player, delivered in so many unbelievable ways that, you know, the, the public's expectations of him are through the roof. And so that has made uh, for a lot of problems in his attempt to have a second act. And Michael is very driven to have a second act. I mean, who, he doesn't need to put up with all this stuff of rebuilding the sorry Bobcats who were replacing the 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 once beloved that came to be hated uh, hornets of George Shin. He went into a mess in Charlotte. He didn't have to do that. That's that's all about uh, his ambition and his desire to keep doing big things. He's still battling with the old man. He's still proving the point. You mentioned that his mom was a major influence in the decision to sign with Nike. Was there any power struggle between his mom and Juanita? Because it seemed like once he married Juanita, Juanita basically took over the finances and handled everything. Right. Uh, His parents, uh, and Sonny Vaccaro had a window to this, his parents never trusted Juanita. They thought that she was some kind of uh, negative influence. Obviously, she became pregnant and had a child, and he he still wasn't married. And they viewed that as a a major complicating factor. You know, Miss Jordan, in the the cleaned-up narrative, Miss Jordan is this middle-class mother. But in the real narrative, she was 15, pregnant, and unwed. And that, she came from a very fierce family of, of people who, you know, her father was MJ before MJ. That guy, nobody won at sharecropping, white or black. Uh, North Carolina Board of Agriculture Report of 1922. Uh, I found it in the UNC. It's an unbelievable study of 10,000 farm families in North Carolina. All of them are landless farmers. All of them broke. Nobody did anything. And yet, Edward Peoples, Dolores Jordan's father, had came to own his own land. He had this much bigger house. He, he grew all these different crops. He was a major moonshiner. Yeah, he he was not a real pleasant guy. He was a real tough customer, but he drove the financial agenda. He also had a job on the side, incredibly difficult work working in the lumber yards down there. And so he, I mean, he just worked all the time, had all this energy. And so in a lot of ways, he was MJ before MJ. Did and, Nike force did Nike force their marriage with Juanita Michael when she was pregnant because they didn't want. There, no, no. I'll tell you what the view is from a variety of sources on Juanita Jordan, and this begins with Sonny Vaccaro. They think that Juanita Jordan was another immense piece of good fortune in Michael Jordan's life. She was uh, not 
demanding. She was very down to earth. She stabilized him. She was very bright. And wherever you turn, this is what you hear about Juanita Jordan. Now, um, Michael very quickly came to have that Elvis kind of life. And we all know what it did to Elvis. And, uh, you know, it, it's amazing that Michael has survived it, but it, it ultimately cost him a marriage to someone who, by all accounts, was a very special woman. The Jordans were so guarded about things, his parents. They really never got to understand what Juanita Jordan was, is the impression I got. And if they ever did come to understand that, and I think they did, it was sort of too late to have the kind of relationship that would have further helped things. I, I think the most impressive thing about all of this family background is not that, um, you know, it's not the sorted details of it. And, um, and that I, I really tried to tell the story without being, uh, without taking it to to that level. But the main reason I wanted to tell all the, and and Jordan's parents, uh, you know, they got into a deal with Nike with the Flight Twenty Three stores. James Jordan was a nightmare. He had a great image in Chicago, and there were certainly plenty of times he's a wonderful guy. But he was a nightmare. And he would not pay the suppliers. It was becoming, the Flight 23 stores were becoming a major embarrassment to Nike, a major embarrassment to Michael. And Michael finally had to take the stores away from his father. And it, that was that was a severe thing for Michael to do. But to me, the major point in all this is that Michael Jordan still did what he did, succeeded the way he did on the court, despite all this stuff going on that no one knew about. Now, once his father was murdered, people became aware that he was doing things with with a lot of difficulty. But But even then, because he was Michael Jordan, I don't think people really understood the... Uh, the difficulties he went through as a family, someone who's had a family member murdered. But the degree of difficulty in his achievements, I mean, his family was a mess, frankly. And it, there was tremendous conflict. And he achieved everything despite that. And I, I don't think the public had an appreciation for the impact that his father's death had on Michael. No, and, and the anger that he returned to Chicago with in 1995. You know, the world was so busy losing its mind, and I was the journalist there covering it. We were all losing our minds. There, there was just snow. I mean, it was just an insane time. It was like some kind of fairy tale. And yet, behind the scenes, all the legal things, the stories, they were ripping that guy to shreds every other day. And, you know, he was humiliated in high school in, in a loss that prevented him from going on to play for the state championship his senior year. And he turned the ball over. They had a lead, no shot clock, about eight-point lead. And, and Michael 
dominated the ball for his high school team. And he ultimately drew an offensive foul and fouled out the lead with a minute to go. Just He, he made mistake after mistake, turned the ball over, and they lost to Kenny Gaddison's team. And it was so painful. Michael is a major trash talker. Kenny Gaddison played with him for years, against him for years in the NBA after having battled him in high school, battled him on the courts of Wilmington, on the outdoor courts, played golf with him, listened to Michael talk trash. Kenny Gaddison never once mentioned that high school loss to him. It was too painful. Gaddison, I mean, it was obvious to everyone. And Jordan did the same thing, if you recall, in the spring of 1995. They had The Bulls had the Orlando Magic beat. Only all Michael had to do was, main, you know, maintain control of the ball, run out the clock, and uh, that failure—that was some of his anger. Uh, the big anger was his father's murder, uh, but there were so many other things. He—he he was involved in, uh, you know, David Falk, his agent, got him involved in all the labor issues, and Steve, you know, he was trying to decertify the union. He. He suddenly had, uh, he went through a lot of changes in a short time, and that whole seventy-two win season was really driven by Jordan's anger. He punched Steve Kerr out, and all these different things. But one thing Jordan did not do was to become involved in politics. You know, he's famous for the quote, uh, "You know, Republicans buy sneakers too." Regarding uh, Jesse Helms' election in North Carolina, the longtime segregationist. Is that a matter of not knowing politics, of not having a social conscience, or what? Well, probably a, a fair amount of the above. The book set, sets out to explain that, you know, we have a lot of uh, iconic sports figures, uh, African-American, uh, Jim Brown, and Kareem, and Bill Russell, and Muhammad Ali, and they, they obviously have played an important role, but none of them came from North Carolina. And people don't understand North Carolina. And one of the things I wanted to explain in the book was that North Carolina is, a, you have this liberal enclave at Chapel Hill, but it is remains today an intensely racist state. And throughout the huge part of the 20th century, it had more Klan members than all the other southern states combined. Ewing was going to North Carolina. Till, he had a fabulous visit there. Jordan was there. He went back to his hotel, and there was a Klan demonstration across the street. Jeez. And, and, you know, throughout the 70s, you'd go into North Carolina from Virginia. I'm from Virginia. And you'd cross the border, and there'd be big signs, Welcome to Klan Country. And, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, George Mumford recalled going down to visit Dr. J when he was playing for uh, the Virginia Squires, the ABA. They'd have to cross the line to play the Carolina Cougars, and those Klan signs were there. And so no one in Jordan's family, the 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 right-wing elements of the Democratic, you know, the Democratic Party were the Dixiecrats back then, uh, uh, they were the they were the real uh, drivers of the white supremacy agenda 
And they violently had an insurrection in Wilmington, took control of the government. In 1898, they had a black mayor and all these black businesses and two black newspapers. They burned one of the newspapers and packed all the leaders off on the train, told them not to come back, killed uh, at least 13 people, the shot of dead, but they're probably many more. I know this is drawn out, but from there, they had had 120,000 black males registered to vote. Within two years after the Wilmington insurrection, it's also called a riot, uh, that number was down to 2,000. White supremacy had come in. Uh, when the Jordans lived in Duplin County in the 1940s, there were only two black male voters registered in the entire county, and I interviewed one of them who was an associate of the Jordans at that time. And so Michael came from this, no African-American was uh, involved in politics in North Carolina. It just wasn't going to happen. And Michael's family was like so many others. All they focused on, especially Dolores Jordan's people, uh, Dolores Peoples, um, they focused on economic success. That was all that was available. And there wasn't much of that. It was a rigged game. It was a miserable set of circumstances. And my only point in that is that Jordan at 27, coming from the family that he did, as young and naive as he was, wasn't going to cross that line. That was not the Jordan way. And Kenny Garrison, in an interview in 2011, said he was really happy that Jordan had said Republicans buy shoes too. That meant that Michael was able to remain this this um, great marketing figure beyond politics. And Gaddison thought that Jordan gained so much um, that it that it was critical. You know, a lot of other people wouldn't have that view, but I think that's typical of the mindset. Uh, the cultural mindset that Jordan came from was shaped by all the files. Were you able to talk to Adolf at all? I know was like Jordan's best friend. Uh, I was not, and I, I, I tracked that guy everywhere. I faxed him request after request. I had, I, I mean, tracking his life story, uh, Adolf's was fascinating. You know, he, he popped up everywhere. He, you know, uh, the Carolina coaches even put him on the JV there for a while, you know, and then he became the party guy in the NBA, and he was he was sort of the guy who was the bartender in the Jordan and uh, the sort of the talk master, and this guy just talked a lot of garbage. He was he he and Jordan came out of that trash talking, uh, you know, subset down there in Wilmington, and he he. Somewhere along the way, um, he he fell out of favor with MJ. I don't know if it's totally out of favor, but Michael moved on. They both live in Charlotte today. I don't think they ever do a single thing together now. That is there any athlete since Jordan that you that you think somebody could write a, a book about that a young audience would be interested in, or is Michael Jordan sort of uh, the last of the athletes that would have that audience that reads, you know, t- t- today we have social media with Twitter, Facebook, all this stuff, short attention span. 
Well, I definitely get the sense that if you're writing biographies about iconic sports figures, you're out here shooting buffalo. Because, <laughs> you know, the, first of all, the sports century is not really a century old yet, but it's 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 sort of like the American middle class. It, it, it's almost ephemera that it's that's, uh, appeared on the surface of humankind, but it's disappearing rapidly. Um, and maybe it won't. Maybe all this stuff will gain a foothold and launch itself into the 22nd century. Um, you know, I, I, I tend to believe we're in for... The, the decades have become centuries now in terms of change. And the one thing that defines our age now is the postmodern age is the rapid pace of change. And, uh, I, I, you know, we've seen incredible change since 1995 when George returned. I mean, the Internet blew up. The Internet was nothing in the first three-peat. I mean, it just wasn't. It was... You know, uh, but that's all changed. And uh, it's changing people. I, um, it, it may be that, that the NFL and the NBA are sort of these images of tradition that the population holds on to and endears because there are not a lot of other traditions that seem to manage to survive. I don't know. You know, Easter... Christmas and Thanksgiving, they they sort of will. They're 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 ensconced in the commercial uh, uh, retail landscape. But uh, I don't know where this is all headed. I think Jordan is a. I, I think he's a huge huge factor culturally. I, I he was the most competent. Per, he was perceived as the most competent person on the planet. I'm from the South. I came along and witnessed. I'm 61. I grew up in a small southern town. I witnessed the character assassination. The schools integrated when I was 13, and I was fortunate to to make some good friends. Two of them are among the, the five people the book's dedicated to, and uh, um, I watched the father of one of my friends. So, like so many people today, just a very bright man, so capable, and the way he was treated in the, in, in my small town is an item of deep shame. And um, the cultural assassination of African American males it had been going on it, it was it was normal it was part of the the uh, the common joking dialogue it was uh, now it's it's uh, you look back on it it's, it seems surreal but Jordan changed so much of that. It's not like he set out to change it. Like he said, timing is everything. He happened along with this unbelievable ability. George Mumford, who's African-American, uh, said just the power he had 
for dark-skinned African-Americans who were items of prejudice, uh, you know, just in the, within uh, the African-American community sometimes. He, uh, there, he was just such a strong, powerful image. And, it, you know, it's a cultural story. It's a business story. Obviously, it's basketball. It's a family story. But I, this is a long answer to your question. I don't think we're going to happen upon that kind of moment in history. Again. But the pressure was on Michael at that in '95 because, like you were saying, the legal stuff going on. Because basically, the athlete of the '70s and '80s, in essence, the most powerful African American athlete, O.J. Simpson, was on trial, and now right, right. Jordan was in the spotlight. Right. Uh, and you know, uh, in the backdrop of O.J. Simpson, I, 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 I don't think the, and I, I could be wrong, but I don't think it hurt at all. Uh, the the white population has had to adjust, um, and they've had to they've had to learn to deal with a lot of fear, and they've had to deal with a lot of shame, uh, uh, an awful lot of it. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, Jordan is a figure that, by virtue of who he was and the way he did things. <laughs> He made that a friendlier, easier process, and I wouldn't. I, I really, it, the past is so horrific; it really doesn't matter, except that it, he's played a role quite unintentionally, uh, and he would be the first to claim that, to acknowledge that, of getting us further down the bunny trail to maybe the where we can have the kind of world where. People just don't give a flip who Roland, what, what, what your color is because it's really bad what you are. You know? Roland Lazenby, thank you for a, a fascinating hour. The book again is Michael Jordan, The Life, a perfect Father's Day or any day book. And I wish we had another hour or two to talk further, but thank you again. Great fun. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Send Michael a copy. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to I've got to send the email to find out what kind of trouble I'm in. <laughs>